Father, today I'll just ask for strength. Um, not for me, but just so that your word can go out in, in, in the way that you want it. So Holy Spirit, uh, come fill this place. Open our minds and hearts and ears and lives to hear from you. We, we need you, Lord. We need to meet you. We need to know you. We need to hear from you today. And so uh, reach into our hearts and uh, help us be and become the church and the people that you long for us to be as your children. That's, that's our prayer. And we pray it in the wonderful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So much had to be done. You see, with carpet, it's just a quick vacuum job and everything's ready. But these first century stone floors, they had the tendency to show everything and the guests were soon to arrive. They had to be swept, mopped, scrubbed. That little brown spot, who knows where that came from. Uh, Mary, can you take care of this? The rug needed to be shaken and beaten outside, tables cleaned, sitting areas dusted. And then, of course, there was the food. The grains were soaked the day before. Martha's strong hands kneaded the dough that morning. And now her infamous honey-baked bread was rising and just about perfect as the top was beginning to turn golden brown. Just two more minutes and it'll be perfect, she thought. Years of refinement, her pickled Dead Sea salted fish were legendary. And as she placed them perfectly around the plate, they were just about ready to be set out neatly for her guests. But the figs, the figs still needed to be picked from the tree out back and the vegetables needed to be gathered from the garden because Trader Jews Palestine was not known for their produce department. <laughs> Mary, I'll grab the vegetables. Can you pick a few figs? And then, of course, all of a sudden, perhaps a bit before anticipated, here they came. Jesus and his disciples were arriving. Martha, they're here, Mary called. Having been on the road for a while now, these men were anything but clean, and so upon entering the house, there was much to do. Feet needed to be washed, hands needed to be washed, beards needed to be washed. That community bowl of soapy water that was passed around, it was it was now brown and filmy, needing to be changed. And the towel, the one the disciples were using to dry off, not even halfway through the group, and it was already so soiled that a replacement was certainly required. Drinks needed to be offered, poured, and refilled. And don't forget the bread. Ah, I hope it hasn't burned. Mary, I'm going to check the bread. Can you grab drink orders? As everyone prepares to sit, Jesus is presented the lazy boy in the corner. But of course, he's Jesus, so he offers to sit on the weird ottoman with no back support. (laughs) But everyone insists, so Jesus sits. Four of the disciples pile on the couch. One nabs the ottoman. Five sit in those metal folding chairs that were brought in earlier from the garage. And the other two, well, they nab the floor. After all, it's clean. This is Martha's house. Yeah, Martha, you know her, right? She's the firstborn of these two sisters. Martha's a worker, a leader, a woman who can get things done. And Martha likes things a certain way, neat, tidy, organized, just right, especially when it comes to people in her home. Coming back in from taking out the bread to cool, she cringed at the side of the family portrait on the wall above the sofa, which apparently had gotten bumped and was now hanging there all tilted. As she made her way around the room, she noticed water spots on some of the glasses she'd asked Mary to clean earlier. Then there was that pile of clothes in the corner. Where'd that come from? Mary, put your stuff away. You see, Mary was much different than her sister. Fun, impulsive, Always part of the action and conversation. 
Mary was the one who constantly kept her shoes in a pile by the front door. Her toothbrush and toothpaste were regularly just left out on the counter. She always put dirty dishes in the sink. And her purse, well, let's just say Mary's purse was a region no organized person should ever even attempt to explore. Back to the story. As Martha circulates the room filling glasses with water, she notices that Mary has now found a seat on the floor in front of Jesus where she sits and listens intently as he begins to talk. Martha Martha gives her the glare and then that not-so-subtle head nod that says, Get in the kitchen and help me. But Mary doesn't respond. She's too focused on Jesus. The passage doesn't tell us what he was saying, but I wonder. Did he talk about the kingdom of heaven? Did he elaborate on Luke 10, 18, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Or maybe he told them a parable that isn't even found in one of the Gospels. Whatever he said, Mary sat, intrigued, focused, oblivious to everything else, including her sister. Now, back in the kitchen, Martha probably overheard a couple of oohs and ahs as Jesus told stories that captivated the group. Maybe he even said something so funny that the entire room burst out in laughter. Getting more irritated now, Mary clangs a few glasses together, or Martha clangs a few glasses together, and then conjures up her best, her, her best martyr voice. Don't worry about me, I'm all right in here. Serving up the plates, the voice inside of her head is now screaming, Who does she think she is? You're in here doing all the work while she just sits out there. Bursting back out into the living room, Martha attempts to compose herself as she hands out the plates. Here you go, Andrew. Do you need one, Peter? Oh, sorry, Jesus. Your drink is empty. I'll get to it in a minute. She looks at Mary. I only have two hands. Back in the kitchen, Martha now waits for Mary to follow. She will certainly help me now. And if not, Jesus will definitely tell her to. But Mary doesn't come. Walking back out into the living room, seeing Mary still sitting and listening and smiling, Martha tries to hold it all together, but her eyes well up tears, and as she begins to speak, she says more than she wanted to reveal. Lord, Don't you care? Don't you see me? See what I am doing all by myself? This is all for you. If you cared about me, you'd tell my sister to get up and help me. The room goes silent. James looks looks at John as his eyes widen. Andrew buries his face in his journal and jots down, Awkward moment between sisters. (laughs) We'll see how Jesus handles this one. Even Peter, even Peter knows to keep his mouth shut in this moment. (laughs) The long, awkward silence is finally broken by Jesus. Martha, dear Martha, you're worried, upset, and getting yourself all worked up over trivial things. One thing only is needed, and Mary has chosen it. It's the main course, and it won't be taken from her. I wonder if those words stung a bit. Only one thing is needed. After all that work, the planning, the cleaning, the drinks, the food, the ambiance, the hospitality, was all that not needed? I mean, this was her gifting, her talent, her passion, the way she served, her offering to the Lord, not needed? 
And furthermore, wasn't Mary supposed to be helping? Wasn't it her job as a woman to attend to the men? After all, for a woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi in this way, it was highly inappropriate. I mean, Jesus had always treated women with a tremendous amount of respect and dignity, but wasn't this going too far? If anyone was distracted, if anyone was off task or neglecting responsibility, it certainly wasn't Martha. It was never Martha. Friends, this morning we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke as we learn how to live like Jesus. And we're looking at this short story in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. It has much, I believe, to say to us today. So grab your Bibles, pull them out. If you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be on page 843. This is a passage where Luke is communicating to us, to you and me, the church, that not just a... But the central component of following Jesus is intimacy with Jesus. You see, many, many times throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about what it looks like to do things in response to the grace we have been given. What it looks like to live the Gospel and be the Gospel and act in response to the Gospel. But in this short story we're looking at this morning, Jesus wants His church to know and never forget that what we do for Jesus must never replace our intimacy with Jesus. A creative friend from mine uh, who lives in Hawaii, Josh Nordgren, he actually helped me write a lot of that intro for today. He, He says it this way, Ministry flows out of intimacy. Your ministry for the Lord should flow from the intimate time you spend in His presence. Your service is desired. Your presence is required. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Here's the actual biblical account. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha... Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Have you ever seen two sisters fight? You ever observed this? Uh, I observed it one time. I was doing a wedding a few years back. And, uh, you know, the night before the wedding when they have the big rehearsal and then the rehearsal dinner and everyone from the family and the wedding party gathers and you sort of run through the ceremony. Well, it was rehearsal time and a few folks from the wedding party, including the bride's sister, also maid of honor, was running a little late. And at first this was no problem. Everyone was casual, plenty of time. But as uh, the minutes began to mount and as the evening's event evening events began to get pushed further and further back. You could just see the stress and the frustration and the anger even uh, mounting in this young bride's mind and heart. Finally, like 45 minutes, an hour after start time, sister shows up. We get right to it and we're now up in front and everyone is being placed and is standing and now the bride and the mom are sort of working with me to sort of figure out if he'll go here and she'll go there and who should turn where and they're getting things all set when all of a sudden in sort of a critical tone I might add the maid of honor sister speaks up and begins to tell the bride all the reasons why what she's planning to do in this moment won't work and why they're just a bad choice 
And I don't know, but it seemed like sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Let's just say the entire dam burst. And these two sisters went on a verbal like tirade barrage of one another for like the next three minutes. And everyone's just standing there watching. And then as soon as the argument, this just explosive argument happens, and then it just stops... And because I'm the pastor and I'm sort of in charge and running the show, it, this argument ceases and everyone just turns and looks to me. <laughs> and, and what their faces all said was, help us, what do we do now? So I'm like rifling through my pastor book looking for that section on bride fights with sister at rehearsal. And it's not in there because they don't teach you that kind of stuff in seminary. So I think I said something like, well, let's pray. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but it was not pretty. Today, friend, we, friends, we have a story. It's a conflict between two sisters, and Jesus is going to use this moment to teach us all something significant about what's at the very center of being a Christ follower, of being a disciple, of what it looks like to follow Jesus and live like Him. And I believe the sentence that sort of uh, everything in this passage hangs on is right at the beginning of verse 40. Listen to what Luke tells us. He says, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And and maybe the most important word in this entire section is that word distracted. In the Greek, it's uh, it's this little word up here, parispeo, and it, it means this, to be occupied by, to be mentally driven about, to be busy, to be distracted, to be, actually it means to be drawn away. There's this, this, this image of being pulled away from something towards something else. And in the time that we have remaining this morning, I want to talk about a few of the things I believe this passage shows us can draw us away from experiencing intimacy with Jesus and truly living out our calling to be one of his disciples. What is it that so often distracts us and draws us away from intimacy with Christ and following Him? The first one is this. It's the most obvious one. Uh, It's sort of what everybody sees when they look at this passage. Daily life. Daily life can so often just pull us away from experiencing intimacy with Jesus and being one of His disciples. One of the most striking things about this story is actually how usual it is. It's simple, it's mundane, it is simply a moment from everyday life. Dinner at someone's house. Now given, Jesus comes for dinner and that doesn't happen every day. But but the point is, this is not a story about walking on water or calming storms or driving out demons or raising someone from the dead or feeding thousands of people with just a small amount of food. No, this is a story about going to someone's house for dinner. This is a story about how sometimes just the everyday routine tasks and obligations of life can distract us from Jesus. You ever experienced this? The fact that it's not really the big things in your life that stress you out or concern you or preoccupy you. Instead, it's the thousands of little things. It's the never-ending and ever-growing to-do list that actually keeps you from connecting with and following God. 
In preparation for the sermon this week, I was looking at my to-do list for Monday because I have Monday off. And so generally what I do is all week I sort of amass a list of things that I would like to do on Monday when I'll actually have some time to get a few things done. And I was looking at my list this week, actually yesterday, and here's the list I have compiled so far. I'm sure I'll add a few things today um, for Monday, for tomorrow, the things I would like to get done tomorrow. No laughing from the front row, honey, please. Mow the lawn, edge the lawn, buy some new dental floss, I'm currently out, uh, replace light bulbs, clean out the storage area downstairs, get the tire on the van fixed because we're currently rolling the dice by driving on the spare, uh, return the softball gear to the Little League, way behind on that, call S- Southwest Airlines about Rapids Rewards points, I'm still due, pay bills, go for a bike ride, and oh yeah, hang out with my four kids, wife, and maybe Jesus. You see, isn't that typical of life? So many things to get done, not enough time. Friends, some of you are looking at your life today and you're thinking, I wonder what verse would really fit for me. Well, here's a potential life verse for you this morning. Luke 10, 41. You are worried and upset about many things. Another place in Scripture, Jesus says this. This is in Mark. The worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Just come in and just rob you of what God wants most for your life, for you to follow Him and connect with Him and live out the word of God. And yet, daily life just seems to sort of move us downstream, move us and shift us away from this reality. You see, sometimes I think we're fooled into thinking that faith is this big thing, that that it's formed and forged on the big, pivotal events of our life. But that's not true, friends. Those things do not make you. They do not truly form your faith. Those giant, big faith decisions you're faced with every now and then, the handful of them that you will face in your entire life, those are not really the moments where your faith is formed. Those moments only reveal what other, everyday, mundane, day-in and day-out situations have formed in you already. Does your everyday life move you towards intimacy with God or distract you from it? You see, I I find this to be one of the most challenging questions, one of the most difficult realities. Now you think, well, you're a pastor. You just come up here to church and pray and connect with God all day, every day. How could this be challenging for you? Right? Uh, I wish it was that way. Let me ask you it this way. And this is maybe the more uh, poignant question, the one that I really think you should focus in on. What in your everyday life is keeping you from having time with Jesus? Like, if, if you're struggling right now with a consistent connection, with really experiencing intimacy with God on a level that nourishes your soul, if that's a difficult from you, for you, what is it that's preventing it? Is, it? is it your busy calendar? What's on that calendar that's preventing you from carving out time? What in your life is a higher priority and thus now kind of shifting God to the back of the to-do list? I was talking to, to Pastor Ron this week, and, and, and some of you know he was on sabbatical, and this passage was extremely formative for you, wasn't it, Ron? And, and he talks about how now sometimes he'll just schedule Jesus in on his calendar. Right on his Outlook calendar, just put him right in. He, he, he gave that suggestion to me this week, and I thought it was just a really good one. 
That's the first thing we see in this story. It's drawing us away from Jesus and following Him and intimacy. Just the routines and demands of daily life. That's point one. Point two is this. The next thing I believe this story shows us might distract us or draw us away from intimacy with Jesus is declared expectations. And here's where we start to take it down a level. Here's where we start to say, what's behind the fact that our daily lives don't always reflect this urgency and drive to have intimacy with Christ? What's, what's kind of back behind that reality. And the first thing I'll point out to us is these declared expectations. Now, to understand this point about Martha's distractions, our distractions, we actually need to focus on what Luke tells us about Mary. Look with me, look with me at verse 39. It says, She, that's Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So in this story, these two sisters are sort of set up against one another. If Martha is the picture of distraction, Mary is the picture of intimacy. And we're told that she sits at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, that little phrase there, sat at the Lord's feet, we need to understand this is not just a description of Mary's placement or posture in the room. Let me give you a little background here. In the book of Acts, Paul, at what point, is giving his credentials to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's actually arguing for his life because the Jews are accusing him of not being a Jew. And, and they've got him on trial and they're about to kill him. And so he's trying to convince them that he is, in fact, a Jew. And in Acts 22, verse 3, he says this. He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Now, this phrase that Paul uses here, um, at the feet of Gamaliel, this was actually a technical term. And, and what Paul is saying here when he says that, he's saying, I am a disciple of the very famous, it turns out, Rabbi Gamaliel. I'm one of his disciples. And so to sit at the feet of a rabbi was to sort of make this statement, I am a disciple of this rabbi. So now, back to our story in Luke. When Luke writes that Mary decides to sit at the feet of Jesus, the point isn't that she was just slacking off and sort of trying to get out of her duties in the kitchen. That's maybe part of what's happening here, but it's certainly not the only thing. What Luke is telling us is that Mary has decided to sign on to be a disciple of Jesus. And she is now sitting at his feet. She is now doing what disciples do. And friends, I point this out to you because this was unheard of. In Jesus' day, women were never disciples of rabbis. In fact, take a guess. Prior to Jesus, how many rabbis in all of recorded human history, how many many rabbis had a female disciple? How many do you think? Zero. Never before in human history do you read of a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, having a female disciple. And so anyone in the first century who would have read this story, they would not have been thinking, man, I guess Jesus really wants us just to sit and listen more. That's not what have, would have jumped off the page at them. No, they would have heard this story, they would have read this story, and they would have been saying, can you believe this famous rabbi defended this woman who decided to sit at his feet? This is crazy, this is scandalous, this is unheard of. You see, what Mary represents in this story is a person who is 
able to not let societal expectations hold her back from following Jesus. And I know this is going to be a hard question for you this morning. I know you have to dig deep and think about this one with me for a while. The answers may not come real easy, but let me ask you this question today. What societal expectations are drawing you away from following Jesus and acting like a true disciple? Are there expectations that our culture, that other people are placing on you that might push you away or keep you from truly being a follower of Christ and experiencing intimacy with Him? Let me try to give you a few examples to help you as you think about this because this can take a lot of different forms and angles. Maybe in the circles you run in, there are some expectations about having it all together. And those expectations are holding you back, preventing you from living the kind of open, honest, transparent life of confession a disciple of Jesus is called to have. Maybe the expectations to to be a really good mom, to be like, I've got it all together business person, to be a pastor who's just ultra spiritual are, are preventing you, those expectations, from sitting at Jesus' feet and really living this open, transparent life of Confession and honesty that God will use to make you a disciple because that's what disciples do. Or maybe in your family growing up, there was this, this expectation that you should hold certain political views and, and, and or believe certain things about society. And now, even though some of those things, some of those views may not reflect the heart of God, you continue to feel the pressure to believe and think and act a certain way because those kinds of expectations, they're not easy to shake. Or, or maybe for you, somewhere along the way, you picked up some expectations about what success looks like. And now, even though you, you read the Bible and you find that the scriptures offer a different definition of what it means to live a successful life, you find it's really hard to break away from the expectations to be successful in the way the world you live defines that. You see, here's the deal. All of us, all the time, are constantly being told in direct and indirect ways, in very overt and also very subtle ways, from the time we're very young, this is what's expected of you. This is how you should think. This is how you should speak. This is how you should act. Here are your expectations as a high school kid, as a child, as a husband, as a father, as a person who goes to this church, as a person who works in this business, as the son or daughter of the parents you have. And what we see in Mary in this moment is a decision. She just makes a decision. Have all the expectations of me that you wish, but I'm going to do it the Jesus way. I'm going to let the expectations of God drive my life more than the expectations of society. And this, friends, is at least, I believe, part of the reason why Martha is so perturbed. Because Mary's able to do what she's not. You see, one of the nuances of how this story is told in Greek is that there's there's this implication, and, and just the way this story is told, that Martha actually wanted to be in the room listening to Jesus. It wasn't that she didn't care or that she 
didn't want to spend time at Jesus' feet. She did. But something inside of Martha told her, I'm not allowed. I'm not supposed to. What I am expected to do is take care of the food. And I think that where Mary overcomes and Martha gets tripped up is the fact that Martha has owned this expectation. She's, she's, she's heard it. It's been offered to her and she has received it. It's been woven deep down into her. She, in fact, maybe she's even begun to let it define her value, self-worth, and identity. And that, friends, that's the third and final distraction I want to look at this morning. The distraction of defined value, self-worth, and identity. Do you know the name Martha actually comes from the Aramaic term mar, which means mistress or mistress of the house or hostess. Martha was known for her home. Perhaps her last name was Stuart. We don't know. What Martha's known for, and, and probably because most women in this culture got their worth, their value, their identity from their husband, from his status or stature, from their children, from their status or stature, as a single woman, these things aren't afforded to Martha. And so maybe without these other realities in her life, Martha largely found her worth and her gift of hospitality. You see, this is what makes me me. This is what makes me important. This is what makes me special. This is what gives me value. And friends, at least part of what I believe Jesus is doing here is he's attacking that notion. He is attacking the notion that our value comes from what we do. No, he's saying, that's not why you're so valuable, Martha. Not at all. A while back, there was a show on the Discovery Channel about... Um, different societal groups around the globe and how uh, different groups assess and assign value in different ways. And they showed some of the most extreme cases, of course. And one tribe they looked at, the men were actually assigned value, a level of perceived masculinity and status in this particular tribe. Uh, it was all determined by how high of a tower they were willing to, to build and then jump off of with just a vine tied to their ankle. And so like the idea here was, and this is, this is true stuff. The idea here was is that the higher you would go and, and, and jump and, and then I guess survive, uh, like the more status you would get in this particular culture. Like you'd, you'd get more status, you'd get more value, you'd have more masculinity. And I'm just re, you know, watching this story thinking, thank you God I wasn't born into that tribe. Because I would have been like at the very bottom of the heap with my little three foot tower, like boop, up, did it guys, I'm a little afraid of heights and this giant body was not made to be held by a vine at all. Um, so that was one society said, hey, here's how we measure and, and assign value. Another tribe, uh, women were assigned value based on how long their necks were. Maybe you've seen this before. And so what these women would do is they would, they would add these gold hoops to their neck and it would slowly, over many, many years, stretch their necks out because the longer your neck, the more beautiful you were, the more status you had in this particular culture. And, and we look at these things and we think, man, that's kind of a silly... I mean, are you like me? That's kind of a silly way to assign value. Another tribe assigned value based on how big your earlobes were. And so these people are stretching their earlobes to like the size of cantaloupes. Because that's what got you status and worth and identity in this particular culture. And then there are cultures where they do really crazy, silly, stupid things like assign value to people based on how fit and toned their bodies are and how 
flat and cut their abs tend to be. Um, or, or they say, hey, your value and identity and worth is all about the kind of car you drive or the neighborhood you live in or the amount of money you make or the number of letters behind your name or the job that you have. You see, here's the point I'm making. Every culture, every society wants to say to us, your value is found here or here or here or here. And Jesus comes to say, no, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, your value comes from the fact that you are my son, that you are my daughter, created in the image of the Most High God. Martha, your value is not found, your worth is not found, and all that you're doing, you're just valuable because you are. Be real careful about defining your value, worth, and identity with anything more than who you are in the eyes of God. That's the message of Christ here. And that's where Mary is such an example to us in this story. She says, nothing, nothing will keep me, distract me, draw me away from being a follower who has intimacy with Jesus, not daily life, not false expectations, not some skewed sense of value or worth or identity. Instead, instead, she says, I'm going to sit at the feet of my master. I am going to spend time with him and I'm going to let him define who I am. You see, at the end of this story, when Jesus says to Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. That's the closing statement in this little short story. That word better there is so significant. It's actually the word, if you technically read the Greek, for better portion. It's a word that was most often used to describe a portion of food, a, a dish at a meal. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's using this whole situation and there's a little play on words happening. And what he's saying is, Martha, you are so focused on preparing this meal, but the real banquet going on in here is the one I want to serve you. The food you're preparing, I'm sure it's good, but Mary has chosen the very best dish of all. She has chosen the feast. She has chosen to spend time with me. She's chosen to get her identity from me, her value from me, her worth from me. She's chosen to set aside expectations of this culture to be and become all that she can be in me. She refuses to let the routine and overwhelming pace of daily life keep her from sitting at my feet. Friends, I know this is just a sermon and that after our time together this morning is over, you will go back to your lives and your to-do lists that are much, many of them longer than mine, and you will be busy and there will be expectations and there will be the things that you have, uh, that have gotten attached to you and that you have reached out and attached to yourself that say, this is why I matter, this is why I'm valued and... This is where I find my identity. I know all that's waiting for all of us outside these doors. But for a few minutes this morning, I just want to spend a few minutes this morning at the end of our service giving you a chance to set aside the busyness and craziness of your life and to sit at the feet of Jesus and spend time with him and talk to him and ask him some hard questions. And let me just ask you to do it this way because this may help you. Think about... 
the distractions in your daily life. The things that actually creep into your schedule that prevent you from having time with Jesus. And then, and then, swim upstream a little bit. Say, why are these things so important to me? Why do they take such a paramount place in my life? Is it because in them I find some value, some worth, some identity? Are my daily tasks attached to some deeper sense of self-worth that I bought into? And then after you discover that, go a level farther and say, why? Why do, these, why do I, I seek to find value and worth and identity here? Are there some expectations that have been offered to me at some point that I've received? Are there some expectations that have been given to me that now I've received and I've owned them and now I find value and identity here and now my life is just spinning around trying to keep these things going? And then, and then if God brings some things to mind, just say, Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to live like that. Because God longs for us not to live like that. He longs for us to live free of that. He longs for us to live from this place where who we are, our value, worth, identity, and the routine of our daily lives is driven not by the expectations of this world, but by the expectations of our Father. And here's what he says to you. You matter. You are extremely valuable because you are my son, because you are my daughter. And if you have any doubt, if you have any doubt about that truth, I invite you to come to the table and I invite you to take these elements, this, this bread and this cup. And then I would just ask that after you spend some time with the Lord, you just receive these elements. And, and let me just tell you what you're doing when you do that. You are declaring, I matter so much. I matter so much to the God of the universe that he sent his one and only son to earth to die on a cross, to shed his blood, that I may be restored to God. See, if you have any doubt about your true identity, your true value, your true worth, all those questions are answered at the table. So spend some time. Connect with the Lord. We're going to give you a lot of time this morning. And then when you're ready, come to the table, receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and uh, you can take them on your own today. Let me pray, and then we'll give you some space here. Thank you, Lord, for being such a radical, for being so far out of the box and for challenging things on such a deep level in us, God. You don't just come to give us a to-do list of things to do. You come to redefine us, remake us, restore us, renew us, and then you part your Holy Spirit to help us. So, God... We need help today. I, I need help today. There's things in my life that I, I have grabbed onto that I'm using to create value and identity in my life, and I don't even see them. As we sit at your feet, God, show us, reveal to us, help us to put our faith in one place and one place only, and that's in you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. We love you because you first loved us. Amen.